0: Hello, my name is uh, Stefan Zimmerman. I'm an associate professor here at Johns Hopkins in the Department of Radiology, working with Dr. Fishman. Um, and today I'm going to talk to you uh, two-parter about preoperative imaging in aortic disease. Uh, recently presented our course down in uh, Orlando, February uh, this year. Um, so no disclosures. Uh, this is an outline of what we're going to review today. Um, we're going to talk about imaging of the thoracic aorta and the abdominal aorta. Um, we're going to talk about uh, acquisition protocols, post-processing, um, and then reporting. And actually the TAVR used to be part of this talk, but um, I've moved it because it's become kind of its own thing. I've moved it into its own talk, which is going to be available separately. Um, so when we think about aortic disease, um, there's it's a spectrum. Um, we think about uh, acute aorta, uh, and then also chronic aortic processes. So. The acute aortic processes, um, these are the things that we see in the emergency department, like in uh, people presenting with chest pain. Um, the things that are really important in life-threatening, aortic rupture, uh, intramural hematoma, penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, uh, type A dissection, traumatic aortic injury from, from tra- uh, usually from a motor vehicle accident or a fall from height, Um, thromboembolic disease and pseudoaneurysms and on the right side of the slide here you can see some examples of these the upper left hand corner you've got a nice example of a type a dissection arising right at the sinotubular junction um a what we would call type a intramural hematoma Um, you see that crescent of high attenuation material around the ascending aorta there Um, a very very large um penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer in the bottom left hand image uh in a descending thoracic aorta Uh, and then finally you see this uh small uh, intimal flap in the descending thoracic aorta in the region of the aortic isthmus, that's just distal to the left subclavian artery origin. And this is a patient who had a traumatic aortic injury. So this talk though, we're really gonna focus on uh, chronic uh, disorders of the aorta and management of those chronic disorders. Um, And in particular, when we think about chronic aortic disease, we think about aneurysms um, and type B dissections, things that basically people get uh, serial imaging follow up to monitor. Um, also, you know, to a lesser extent, we'll see patients with vasculitis um, or atherosclerotic disease that, that may be progressive. Um, say, for instance, if somebody's having claudication symptoms that are uh, progressing over time. Um, so, in these images, you see upper left hand corner type B dissection. Uh, with true and false lumens, in the upper right-hand corner, you see somebody with severe vascular disease. This is somebody with mid-aortic occlusion. You can see the column of aortic contrast in the volume rendered images stops just below the renal arteries because of that mid-aortic occlusion. Bottom left-hand image is a patient with Takayasu vasculitis. And you see the irregular dilation of the uh, both the aortic arch and the descending thoracic aorta. And then finally, in the bottom right-hand image is somebody with a large uh, aneurysm um, with a mural thrombus. So uh, the thoracic aorta, first, um, just some notes about the thoracic aorta to make sure everybody's on the same page. We want to make sure that we're using the proper terminology when we're discussing the thoracic aorta and um, in particular the location of various abnormalities that we see on imaging. Um, And so the thoracic aorta is broken up into three parts. There's the ascending aorta, which is basically from the um, aortic valve level all the way to the origin of the first branch vessel, which is going to be the innominate artery. Um, this patient has you know, the so-called bovine arch variant where there's an innominate artery and a uh, left common carotid or artery um, that are sharing the same origin from the, uh, from the aorta. You know, incidentally, we, we make sure not to say that in our reports, bovine arch, because we certainly don't want patients to get upset and think that we're describing them as, as a cow or something. Um, so you know, we just say normal variant, uh, common origin um, um, in our imaging reports, especially now that patients are reading uh, reports so much more than they used to, um, so the aortic arch is is the the segment of the aorta from the, the origin of that innominate artery all the way to the last branch, which would be the left subclavian artery, and then the descending thoracic aorta is everything else down to the diaphragmatic hiatus, and then another important part of the aortic anatomy is the aortic root. Um, the the term aortic root is a bit confusing. Um, it's used interchangeably to describe, uh, in particular, the area of the aorta just above the aortic valve at the level of the sinuses of valsalva. So when we think about somebody with aortic root dilation, that's really what we're generally thinking of. But then other people, particularly our surgical and medical colleagues, will often use the term root to refer to this whole area of the aorta, inclusive of both the sinuses of valsalva, the sinotubular junction, and the proximal to mid-ascending aorta. And so it's always important to make sure that when you're talking to your clinical colleagues about these things, that you're on the same page, and you're describing or what you think you're describing is the same thing is what they're understanding. Um, and so, so it's important to use consistent terminology. And the terminology um, we would suggest, and, and is really you know the the most correct terminology is to refer um, these portions here of the ascending aorta. First, you've got the aortic annulus. This is where the um, aortic valve leaflets attach uh, to the heart. Um, this is really kind of the beginning of the the aortic root region everything above here you can consider the aortic root the sinuses of valsalva so when when i describe in my report somebody having a dilated aortic root uh, this is what i mean it mean i mean that the sinuses of valsalva region here is dilated Um, and the numbers you use and we're going to talk a little bit about numbers and thresholds for aneurysms Um, basically are pretty similar between the sinuses and the ascending aorta so you can really just use those numbers more or less interchangeably. Um, Sinotubular junction, uh, that's where the um, sinuses meet the tubular aorta Um, and and we often provide measurements here in our reports at the sinotubular junction. Um, I'm not sure exactly how helpful they are but it's it's sort of part of the routine. Um, Certainly Effacement of the sinotubular junction is something we've all learned as um, residents that is associated with uh, connective tissue disorders like Marfan's disease. So it's something you look for. Um, But beyond that, I'm not sure how helpful evaluation of the sinotubular junction really is. Um, So when we evaluate the aorta, we report different aortic measurements. um, And obviously it's important to know what is the upper limit of normal for the thoracic aorta. And generally, um, when you ask, you know, your colleagues, most people are using these numbers here. This is from, uh, taken from a Radiographics article, but you can find this, you know, sort of reiterated in multiple different places. Most people I talk to um, use uh, four centimeters as their threshold for calling uh, an aorta abnormal, and uh, in the ascending aorta and three centimeters in the descending thoracic aorta. Now, having said that. Um, The four centimeter number is not a perfect number, and I think that's well known. Um, This is some data that came from the Framingham Heart Study. So a very, very large study of hundreds of patients who uh, underwent um, basically calcium scoring. Um, And so these are uh, ECG-gated images, no cardiac motion artifacts, and they measured the ascending aorta on all these patients. Um, they used axial measurements, um, so typical to what we would do in the clinical routine. And here are some uh, here's some data pulled from that uh, publication, um, which I think is very interesting and sort of instructive when we think about setting thresholds for uh, aneurysms or what we would call aneurysms in our reports. Um, this is a chart, uh, several um, graphs uh, of ascending aortic diameter in men. So the uh, x-axis here is BSA, body surface area, and then the y-axis is the ascending aortic diameter. And so you'll notice as the body surface area goes up, so as you get patients get larger and larger, there's also a trend to larger aortic diameters, which makes perfect sense. Um, But the other thing you'll notice is that this dashed yellow line I put at the 40 millimeter or four centimeter mark, so our typical threshold for saying something is abnormal. You'll notice that in the bottom right-hand corner in particular, as well as the bottom left, men you know, 65 years or older, um, there's a, a good proportion of men who have ascending aortic diameters that are greater than 4 cm um, and are within the normal bell curve. Um, so the, the gray shaded area basically is two standard deviations around the mean, which is the orange line. So um, in men over 65, it probably is, is reasonable to use a different cutoff um, and 45 millimeters is, is probably a little more realistic um, to, to use as your threshold for saying somebody has a normal, an abnormally enlarged aorta, particularly if the patient is a large patient. Um, the, the patients with a big body surface area are gonna have much larger aortas. Uh, for women, um, these graphs here, again, showing two standard deviations around the mean in the gray shaded boxes and then the yellow dotted line showing where the threshold is between um, below, ab- above and below 40 millimeters, you can see that basically for women, there's um, really not much of the population that that is going to be above 40 millimeters, and so if you use that threshold you're probably safe even in women who are 65 years or older so what are the causes of thoracic aortic aneurysms the most common thing we're going to see is somebody developing an aneurysm just basically from aging Um, you know no specific cause per se it's just something that develops over time and some people are predisposed to this for probably a variety of genetic factors many that most likely have not been identified. Hypertension can accelerate the process and certainly um, can contribute to development of aneurysms as well. Um, In younger patients, uh, if we see a thoracic aortic aneurysm, what you really got to think about is bicuspid valve. And I'm sure you probably heard the term bicuspid valve aortopathy. Um, This is a, this is, Basically, I guess you could call it a disease of the aorta where patients who have a bicuspid valve, their aorta, or ascending aorta in in particular, is also not normal. And so they have a tendency to develop aneurysms of the ascending aorta, and they can also develop dilated aortic roots, which you see really nicely in this patient who has a really big uh, aortic root at the sinuses of valsalva. So so these patients have a a tendency to develop these aneurysms and, and should be monitored and then the connective tissue disorder. So another situation where you might see a younger patient with a really large thoracic aorta would be um, something like Marfan's disease. We see a lot of lois Dietz here at Hopkins because um, we are a referral center for those types of patients. Um, but any kind, you know, Ehlers-Danlos, any kind of connective tissue disorder really can, can present with uh ascending aortic dilation particularly the aortic root in those cases with sinus uh, vas- uh, excuse me, sinotubular junction effacement, um, but, but also the mid-ascending aortic can also become dilated. Uh, another scenario which we have seen um, also uh, where patients develop thoracic aortic aneurysms is in patients who've had a previous type B dissection. So if you have a type B dissection, you know, it's a, generally a non-surgical management um, so we follow these patients over time. They do pretty well. They get blood pressure treatment, and, and, and um, you know, generally the things are, you know, fine. It's more of a chronic disease. But what can develop is, uh, is aneurysms over time. And so this patient had a normal caliber aorta when the dissection initially happened, and then um, over time developed this very large aneurysm of the um, descending thoracic aorta. And oftentimes it's that very, very proximal segment of the descending thoracic aorta, just to distal the aortic arch that gets really dilated over time in patients with type B dissections. Mm-hmm. So uh, what are our surgeons looking for? Their number that they have in their head is five and a half centimeters, and so that's an important number for us to remember. Um, basically, it's, it's actually a, a nice number because it applies to both the ascending aorta, the arch, and the descending thoracic aorta. Five and a half centimeters, uh, if a patient has a aortic, uh, diameter greater than that, then they're going to prophylactically go in and repair that aneurysm. As a general rule, I mean, obviously you always take into account comorbidities and other things, patient preference, but that's the general sort of uh, uh, number to remember. Um, You notice there's some asterisks here next to those numbers, and that's because the numbers are different if you have a connective tissue disorder. So for instance, Marfan's or something else, and and they're a little different depending on which disorder you have. Um, but that backs the um, threshold down a little bit so that you will repair at a smaller size. This is because those patients have weaker aortic walls, they're more predisposed to dissection or rupture at smaller sizes, so therefore your threshold is gonna be smaller to go in and intervene in an asymptomatic patient. And then also, um, if the double asterisk here is for the uh, descending thoracic aorta, it turns out if you have a thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysm, Um, so big complex aneurysm that involves both the thoracic and the abdominal aorta, then the threshold becomes bigger. Well, why is that? So um, it turns out it's not that the patients have less risk for rupture, so we're allowed to let them get bigger. That's not true at all. The the rupture risk is probably similar. Um, It's rather that the uh, surgical uh, risk is higher, so that shifts the risk-benefit ratio. Um, And that's because these big complex thoracoabdominal aneurysm repairs require Um, you know, uh, removal of large segments of the thoracic aorta and and there's a a higher risk of spinal artery um, compromise, which could lead to paraplegia. And so because of that, the um, shift, there's a shift in the risk-benefit ratio and the threshold is higher. One other thing we look for, one other um, uh, finding that one might see that would um, lead one to repair an asymptomatic aortic aneurysm uh, is change in size. So here's an example, uh, case the patient um, had a, a seven centimeter aneurysm um, and a six centimeter ascending aortic aneurysm, um, excuse me, six c- centimeter ascending and seven centimeter descending aortic aneurysm. Um, both of these actually would meet the size threshold for uh, repair. Um, here's just another example, this is a nice case of somebody with a really really large uh, ascending aorta um, and descending aorta, the same uh, example here, but this time with uh, sagittal images. And a volume rendered example of the same case. So this is a type of case that would um, probably get repair of both the ascending aorta and descending thoracic aorta. They wouldn't do them both at the same time, but um, most likely do them as a stage procedure um, because of the size of these aneurysms. So one thing that's interesting to know and it's a little scary is that um, this number that we use, the five and a half number, is not uh, a great predictor of type A dissection. So there's a large international registry that was established looking at patients who have dissection, and then, um, you know, basically people who present to these uh, participating hospitals, all their data gets sent to this registry. And so a lot of good data has come out of that. Uh, in this particular study, they looked at 600 patients who had a type A dissection, and basically looked at the size of the aorta at the time of dissection. And it turns out that a large number of patients were below this 5.5-centimeter threshold. So um, a little scary to think that a lot of the patients who present with type A dissection actually would not have been repaired, even if we had identified them earlier. Um, You know, this is sort of like the unfortunate truth. Um, This is what happens when you set your uh, risk-benefit ratios based on surgical morbidity and mortality. And so this is where we're at. Um, you know, some of these cases probably were connective tissue disorders, so they may have been uh, intervened upon if they were identified earlier. Um, but nonetheless, it's just important to know that, um, you know, five and a half is not the end-all, be-all. And certainly one could see somebody presenting your ED with type A dissection and a relatively smaller uh, ascending aorta. Now, I mentioned a change in size, that being the other reason one would go and get a repair. So this is a nice example of a case where in March of 2009, the patient measured 3.7 centimeters and then grew just in six months up to five centimeters. So that's more than a centimeter growth uh, in six months. And uh, that is uh, a little scary. Uh, and so what that means is that this is an unstable aneurysm um, and the patient is undergoing rapid aneurysm ex- expansion. Um, Really the left-hand image, you wouldn't even call it an aneurysm, right? You just call it a dissection. Uh, it didn't, does it? really, well, I, sort of mild aneurysm, right, just above three centimeters. Um, but, uh, but on the right side, um, certainly uh, quite large now at five centimeters. Um, and even though it is under the five and a half centimeter threshold that we just talked about, the fact that it's growing fast would mean that they would want to go in and intervene. Here's another example. This patient had a, a five and a half centimeter uh, aorta um and then it grew to 8.6 centimeters so 3 centimeter growth Um, and it was under two years um, so that's pretty rapid expansion as well and also signifies an unstable aneurysm so the important number we need to remember is imagers one centimeter per year so if you have a thoracic aortic aneurysm growing uh, at more than a rate equal to or more than one centimeter year that's very concerning Um, and that patient will, would should undergo repair, uh, you know, barring any other core morbidities, um, uh, even if asymptomatic. Um, and, and even if the patient doesn't meet the size threshold of five and a half centimeters. Um, so if there is a change um, over five millimeters, um, then, you know, you want to really consider that as being a real change and make sure that um, you do... Um, your due diligence when you're doing your reporting if you see that you're reporting out a difference in aneurysm size of five millimeters or more then you want to make sure you're really checking those old images and make sure it's a real true change and not just inconsistency of measurement between you and the last reader Um, certainly that that happens it's a very easy thing to 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 happen to have fairly large differences in reads between two different radiologists so you You want to make sure that you're looking at the source images for the previous study and the current study and making sure that, in fact, this is a real change because it can have really big implications for the patient. Okay, one other question that comes up all the time, and we struggle with this um, in the uh, clinical routine is when do you recommend follow-up for an incidental thoracic aortic aneurysm? So we talked about size thresholds to define when an uh, aorta is aneurysmal. Um, and how we use about four to four and a half centimeters. But then what do you recommend? And so um, there really is no clear consensus among radiologists. Um, This is actually the only thing I could find. We don't have a white paper, unfortunately. This is um, uh, a paper from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology put out in 2010 called Guidelines for Diagnosis and Management of Patients with Thoracic Aortic Disease. In this patient, they have an algorithm um, for looking at patients with enlarged aortas. Um, and they actually suggest that if you have an aorta over three and a half centimeters one should get an annual CT or MRI. Um, I, I think that's a little too sensitive uh, in my opinion. Um, you know if we do if you do a lot of imaging you know that three and a half centimeters is, is incredibly common. Um, so you know they're, they're really I don't think anybody really follows that number because you'd be scanning everybody. Um, so we use four centimeters here um, and generally if I find an incidental, incidentally detected four centimeter aneurysm in a patient who's you know otherwise healthy let's say undergoing like lung cancer screening or something like that then i would suggest um, serial monitoring and i usually suggest at least an initial echocardiogram to make sure they take a look at the aortic valve make sure there's no bicuspid valve Um, also get a better look at the aortic root Um, so uh, four and a half maybe if the patient's 60 if it's a male who's 65 and older um, and if patients under, you know, if patients doing routine imaging for, say, like cancer follow up or something, then, then I don't recommend any specific individual follow up for the thoracic aneurysm. I think we can just keep an eye on it as they get their cancer uh, uh, follow uh, up scans. Um, so, thoracoabdominal aneurysms, um, just one last uh, slide uh, and note before we uh, take a break. Um, this is something that you can very quickly Google at the workstation and and, and figure out the details. Um, you'll see this nomenclature for thoracoabdominal aneurysms in um, the notes of the vascular surgeons. Um, to be honest, I, I have to look it up most of the time because it doesn't really easily commit itself to memory. But um, just putting this in here so you know that there are different categories um, and uh, uh, different uh, names for um, types of thoracoabdominal aneurysms depending on what Parts of the anatomy they're involving, and in particular, whether they're involving the mesenteric arteries or the renal arteries. And each one has a slightly different um, risk um, uh, to the patient for repair. Um, so, these are the type th- types of things that we want to make sure that we report is as far as the extent of the aneurysm. Is it involving the um, uh, descending thoracic or is it involving the celiac trunk, the, the renal arteries? We don't necessarily need to t- say the type, but you certainly want to say what. Uh, where the aneurysm begins and ends and which uh, branch vessels are involved. Okay, so with that, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about the abdominal aorta.